0: Say a torso, you know what? A so. A fucking a Hello, hello and welcome to another episode of Bottleman. It is as ever myself Riley and I am ably joined by Dan. How's it going, Dan?
1: Good. Um, well, I'm uh, still on assignment in New Orleans. Uh, weather's heating up here, getting, getting kind of swampy and mm-hmm. hot. Um, I'm, starting to, I'm starting to feel the beginning of uh, what will be my first Louisiana
0: summer. So, mm-hmm. uh, let's go. See, I, I remember my, my sort of the lost summers of my youth in Louisiana. I was handing out flyers for the Fair Play for Cuba Committee in 1963. <laughs> totally, I was, I, I, was with, uh, I was hanging out with I was hanging out with some some rough customers. Uh, yeah. A lot of guys who'd recently made an international trip. Some people who I think worked for the government. And then yeah. um, there was Jack Lemon was there, and he was drunk and getting the shit kicked out of him by Guy Bannister. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> I, re- I remember being, uh, you
1: know, I remember being asked to go to a, ca- a cabin in the swamp uh, and and try this delicious picadillo that my new friends had made. Or other <laughs> native food.
0: That's right. I, I can't remember. D-
1: Discuss the removal of uh, one American head of state.
0: <laughs> yeah. And then um, uh, just like, I think it was the guy who would then become Joe Kennedy the third's grandfather came in and said, Donde esta la biblioteca? And then he got shot.
1: Yeah, it was, we were. I was surprised as anyone. You know. Yeah,
0: that's right. No, um, it is. It is Riley and Dan, uh, and we are very pleased to be rejoined uh, by Crackdown Pods, uh, Garth and Sam. Garth, Sam, how
2: you guys doing? Hey, thanks for having us. Hey, what's
0: up? Doing good. You
3: are.
1: Uh, it's Vancouver.
2: It's beautiful cold. today. It's cold this morning.
3: Mm. Uh, I don't know. The you're looking result. on the, <laughs> it's sunny. is It's sunny and nice though. I mean, it oh. looks you know, beautiful. When I, when I
2: say cold, I like it that way because, uh, the opposite is heat dome and people dying. so cold is okay with me, you know, okay. like by cold, I mean, cold for Vancouver, like it's zero or something.
1: Mm -hmm. I I was worried for a second there that the the sort of internal dissension was going to result. You guys would just end Crackdown podcast right now. That's it. It's over.
0: (laughs) Yeah. We're done. That's it. We're going to become the in-house comms team at Sheila Malcolmson's office. We're done. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No. So look, like. Uh, what we're going to do is we're, we have, we have Sam and Garth back on today, not just to talk about, uh, the weather in Vancouver. Although of course we couldn't possibly start an episode without weather corner. Um, right. a theme song specifically for weather corner. Um, we are going to be talking about the, uh, I'd say continued, uh, I don't know if we, what you want to call. You could call it a, um, sort of social murder by neglect, perhaps, uh, that is being overseen by Canada's, uh, allegedly progressive party. In it's most allegedly progressive province, British Columbia. Um, so since we last spoke, right, there have been some updates from the um, from the uh, uh, sort of BC Corners service where they've confirmed that I believe, please keep me honest with my numbers, that 201 people died of poison drugs in October, which is the highest monthly death count ever. And that at Except this for point, November and December. God damn, what? <laughs> Is it just gets it's worse every day? 210,
2: 215. So they got worse. Oh, man. Yeah.
0: And, and so, and, and additionally, right, that as of 2021, the numbers have come out that 2,224 people have died. And they've died of what is essentially a refusal to take the problem seriously on behalf, on behalf of the BC NDP. That, would you say that's correct?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah.
0: And um, you know, that uh, six years ago, Right. Uh, Toxic drug deaths were declared a public health emergency in BC. The rate of deaths is increasing. The overall number of deaths is increasing. And um, I want you to tell me a little bit. uh, Has someone quit? Has someone stepped down? Has anyone in charge of trying to stop this particular crisis faced a single consequence?
2: Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, uh, it it seems like people congratulate themselves and, and get awards and, and do press conferences. But, yeah, I've never heard of anyone resigning or getting fired. Uh, people there's a, there's a huge pile of them now, like former ministers and former officials who've uh, like overseen a bunch of death, leave public life and then sort of. I guess over gin and tonic sort of wring their hands and be like, Oh, I I wish I could have done more. But uh, other than that, yeah, I don't think anybody's faced any uh, serious consequences. Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah. And, and more than just not facing consequences, as far as I could tell on the day that uh, the, these um, that the, the stats for 2021 were announced. I don't think Adrian Dix, uh, the minister of health out here. I don't think he said the word overdose. Um, He didn't talk about it. I don't think he faced a question about it. He did hold a press conference that day, mm-hmm. Um, so it it was as if it didn't happen from his point of view,
1: mm-hmm. right? So what does he say instead of overdose? He says dr- uh, drug related deaths. Uh, he, uh, he didn't talk. This is this is why we about have a- it. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> he talked about COVID nineteen. You know, he did right. like he he literally, it literally as if was as if it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, he was in a he he did a press conference about COVID nineteen that day with Bonnie Henry, our public health officer, and she said a sh- very short statement about how sad it
2: was, uh, and that was basically it in
3: the press conference. So.
2: Mm. This is the NDP's gift to the world: is the invention of somebody else to say these nasty things. So instead <laughs> of having the minister of health, which is usually a pretty senior portfolio overseeing a big amount of spending and all that. They invented a new ministry, like the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. And lots of people have now copied them, you know, other provinces and the federal government. So it's like you can get somebody else, a junior minister, to go and carry all the shit for you. You Mm -hmm. you don't have to do it yourself. And that's what they've done. So it's like they've they've sort of haven't invented a solution to the crisis, but they've invented a calm solution to the crisis. Right. Mm.
1: That is it. That's an incredible uh, liberal solution to a problem that uh, <laughs> they created, you know, I mean, it's something yeah. that
0: you see in, in Britain as well, right? Where the government knows that it's whatever it's doing, something that's extremely unpopular that it wants to keep doing. And so what it does is it invent, and you can always, and you can tell, right? Cause it invents a fake minister um, whose job is essentially to uh, innovate more. He here here it's less about comms and more about innovation, but it's sort of the same thing because it's about as conceptually empty, um, where their job is to innovate our way out of whatever crisis that we're in. And so, like for example, you'd end up with um, the British government once, while trying to like fight the fact that no one had any money, tried to create something called a nudge unit, to get people to make better financial choices. And so. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like. Yeah man it didn't do fucking do anything. But it, you had the appearance of doing something. And so it felt. Like if you want to think about. If, if Let's just say this. If your government is being compared to that of Britain. Then you are a world leader. In sort of. Um, a, great, a great sort of pantomime of fakery. In gesturing to a problem. That you don't really want to solve it seems yeah. to me i
2: think the comparison is really apt but but instead of thinking of like tony blair which is i think what a lot of people would think of a poor ndp government you know it's like the guy who basically you know stuck a knife into labor and and really brought neoliberalism in deepest tony blair we, we sort of we got a guy out here, John Horgan, who's more playing from Margaret Thatcher's songbook. Mm-hmm. So he's he's going even further to the right because we keep having all these crises where people die or great amounts of misery are caused. And the guy kind of says variations of personal responsibility to all of them. And, mm-hmm. and you can tell in the background there's just like this this specter of there is no such thing as society it just hangs over it all right that's that's how they get away with it because n- none of us believe there's a society no one's gonna be so rude as to try and point that out and 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 so we just sail through the deaths with a, a you know a sad comment or a fake ministry
3: mm-hmm. yeah garth the two the two most like obvious examples of that <clears throat> was when uh was when he was comparing the fact that there's there's far more overdose deaths than COVID 19 deaths in bc you know he said he 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 said well uh drug use starts as a choice as you know in a way to kind of say it, you know in some ways it's less sad mm-hmm. uh when people die of overdose or that's how many people took it and he had to apologize for that and then he also you know he when <clears throat> people were dying uh during the heat dome he, he said it's not our government's responsibility to kind of inform people about what was going on. Like people have to take some personal responsibility as if like the problem was a lack of information and not that like we're all in these sort of like air conditionless apartments and there was no public space you could go to to cool down. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I mean, he does have, he, he has sort of become this like, this figure of like, figure it out, you know, like yeah. everything's falling apart. You're just going to have to figure it out.
0: I mean, that's the, this is one thing I've I sort of, every time we, we've talked to you guys about this, well, before we talked to you about this before, what I see is this enormous, this feeling of, of the NDP is trying to walk the tightrope that modern politics now walks on where everyone kind of agrees that you're on your own, right? Yeah. Whatever crisis happens, whatever like pandemic rolls through, the amount that the state can do in order to like, you know, deal with the problems that we think that the state exists for to like keep society reproducing or whatever. Um, it's basically saying, well, no, we can't deal with those. If we wanted to, we nuked our own orbit, our our ability to deal with it from orbit about 20 years ago. Um, we can, the state sort of exists to do now is kind of, you know, trying to just like make you feel better about it, uh, with all these like fake comms and innovation roles or whatever. But and it seems like what what you're saying about Horrigan, it seems like he's walking the tightrope between, like I don't know, doing the cry laugh emoji, like oh, lol, you should have should have done should have done a better job, like sorry sorry heat cucks, I can't turn on your air conditioner for you, and mm-hmm. also doing the standard like you know fake progressive thing of, you know we 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 all have to you know uh, band together to you know create the future. Like it seems like he's trying to do both.
1: You can see the lie behind it too, because as as we're talking, I'm just thinking about the uh, the two events superimposed on each other that happened uh, what three four months ago. The atmospheric river hitting British Columbia, knocking out <laughs> knocking out like critical infrastructure and uh, trans and and transportation links to the literally the rest of the fucking country, and at the same time you know you see the 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 government snapping very quickly very efficiently into action uh against land defenders in Wet'suwet'en, at the mm. coastal gaslink mm. project you know and that that is to me kind of i and i thought about the i thought about the overdose crisis while this was happening um and i just felt like it was the government kind of rubbing everyone's face in it just being like see we actually can do something uh if we care about it <laughs>
3: Well, I think it's I think it's way easier probably for them to govern to to the right. Like I think yeah, like yeah. the 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 right's political organizing power and in the institutions like the cops and the, the the kind of like institutional power of the right is just stronger and like they there's it's a frictionless process for them to do that mm-hmm. kind of policy making and I think it probably would take more uh courage and leadership to Do something about the overdose crisis you know but i um uh yeah (laughs) i think so so i think on some level it's true that they fucking that that neoliberalism is like totally eroded the state's ability to easily act in in the public good but um but yeah it hasn't eroded the state's ability to act against the public that's fucking for sure
2: Mm. I mean, there's two there's two teams in contention right now, and we're not on either. You know, there's team um, hellscape neoliberalism and then team authoritarian capitalism. And you can see that they're fighting with each other, particularly in Ottawa, where it's the, um, you know, the Emergencies Act versus the convoy. Mm-hmm. And the state is having a crisis of legitimacy. It's having a crisis within itself because, it, you know, they, they didn't declare the Emergencies Act to go and go after um you know, a protest in front of Parliament. The problem was inside the the call was coming from inside the House. It was the cops, right? <laughs> it was the institutions of the state were now departing from what the head of state wanted to do. So you, you had this you had this need to kind of um, r- bring it all back together. I, I think that was the main problem is it was the, the emergency was that the cops didn't want to support it, that the cops were supporting team authoritarian capitalism. Mm -hmm. And so like when we're looking for something else, we're not even on the radar.
1: We were talking about this on our, in one of our last episodes about understanding Ottawa in, in terms of like a a type of a police strike. And and I think you're totally right. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. like this emergencies act is a way of, uh, Showing sort of showing the rest of Canada that the government is like, quote,
0: like willing to do discipline or whatever. Mm -hmm. And if you want to, also if you want to think about that, right, one of the things we were talking about on that episode was the, the, the impetus behind all of this is this understanding on every single team, our team, those other two teams, that this big machine is kind of breaking. This, this a big political machine that governs sort of like this area is breaking down mm. its ability to, de- to deliver the social reproduction is breaking down um, or it's breaking down for more and more people. There's this awareness of it. And the thing is, uh, and the team that we're talking about, the, the, the team that we're you know, rooting for, especially the team that you guys are talking about, um, these are people for whom it has been it has been being failed for a very long time on purpose, very aggressively. And, you know, it's very, I think, disheartening to then look at Ottawa and see two ruling, class, two ruling class ideologies sort of duking it out for who gets to rule over the pile of cinders. And I mean, I think that there is no better canary in the coal mine than sort of various situations in B.C. right now, among them, um, the opioid epidemic that is essentially a choice being made by the B.C. NDP, you know, and. Um, so, look, I wanted to talk a little bit more about um, your interactions with Malcolmson. So, uh, Sam, you you asked uh, Malcolmson a question that I believe she's outright refused to answer.
3: Yeah. So before we get into that, do you mind if I give a little context? Because no, no, I just please. want people to understand the uh, extent to which um Sheila Malcolmson's ministry, the Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions, is a fake ministry. Mm-hmm. Like when we say that, what we mean. So the overdose crisis was declared in 2016, right? 2017, they, uh, BC's government creates this new ministry, the Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions. Last year, that ministry's total operating budget was $12,735,000. That's the that's the estimate. The cost of actually running the ministry, like the staff and the travel computers and shit like that, was 12735000 $12, So the entire operating budget is just going to keeping the ministry going, paying the staff, and that kind of thing. They don't do any policy out of, the, out of that ministry. Um, and then when I asked them about this, the comms people, they stress, but don't worry, $2.7 billion is being spent on mental health and addiction services in the province so don't worry we're not like not spending money as if that doesn't underscore the fact that they don't do fucking anything (laughs) like there is like all this programming in the you know like like obviously the ministry of health has lots of stuff that they do The, the um all the policing that comes out of like the ministry of public safety and no one for a second would pretend that minister malcolmson has authority over the programming in the ministry of health or the ministry of public safety so like it's it's very clearly like the ministry of mental health and addictions is the sin eater of the ndp right Mm -hmm. like her job is to be officially sad about stuff and um and not have any kind of power to do anything about it so that adrian dix doesn't have to say the word overdose when the um when the stats are released Uh, Frankly, it sounds like a terrible job, right? Because I don't think it's like a career advancement move, <laughs> because you're always going to be marred with this like, um, with with this reputation of presiding over this like wave of preventable death. I don't see how this is a stepping stone in any way, and I'm kind of curious why anybody would want to have this job. Uh, who's an aspiring politician? But um, yeah. So Minister Malcolmson. In, when we found out that there was going to be uh, these new stats, we're going to break all the previous records, we, um, we asked her if she would come do an interview on the show. We've interviewed ministers of mental health and addictions before, um, and we just got kind of an indefinite no. Uh, Garth, do you want to talk about that a little bit like we got like a like a polite oh we're really busy like for forever kind of a thing
2: <laughs> yeah our, our producer alex DeBoer, was in conversations with her people about scheduling an interview for like a couple of weeks and i think we eventually got uh no there's no time in my schedule now or for the next couple of months mm-hmm. uh, you know like <laughs> so wow. Dude, were, prongs, Minister. Were just-
0: this is what you're supposed to fucking do <laughs>
1: Yeah. It's the yeah, only they're, role. It's they're her supposed role, to do one know. thing, like, which is communicate.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Garth, please go on. <laughs> I just couldn't that oh, no, myself. I, I,
2: th- that's all I think. I think officially sad is, is yeah. true. And, you know, um, she was she she may be concerned that we were going to give her like a hard time uh, mm. in, in an interview. And, you know, we would have been direct, but we've interviewed ministers before my My policy is you just let them you know talk themselves into a corner like they'll they'll do that if you just if you just let them so i don't i don't i don't need to beat up on anybody on the tape you know
0: mm-hmm.
3: yeah and and of course we also asked uh mr Dix um to be on the show too, and that was like obviously also a no so um so we called in to their press conference to to minister malcolmson's press conference and uh, it very speedily went by, uh, and we were we were not asked uh, to ask a question. I, again, unusual. Normally, we we are allowed to ask questions. And uh, for what it's worth, the other only other person I know of who wasn't able to ask a question was um, uh, Mo- Moira Whiten from um, from the Taii, uh, and she is, uh, to my knowledge, the only person who's ever asked Minister Malcolmson. If uh, she'll step down in light of these uh, in light of these stats, and Malcolmson was clearly offended by the question and cut the interview short after being asked it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the question we were going to ask in the press conference too. Um, so they managed to sort of just neatly. Uh, in their press
2: conference, I mean, they mostly bragged about all the good shit they were doing. Um, this was and- a press conference <laughs> to announce uh, over two thousand deaths, mm-hmm. right? So, like, yeah. this is a very strange time to do a political stump speech. Mm-hmm.
1: Didn't and it's they basically what it was? Yeah, didn't they cut the they cut the press conference uh, after the question from the Tai at like forty minutes, right? Like, it was absurdly short. It was, it, it was short. like forty.
3: 43 minutes, the tie didn't get to answer, to ask a question. Uh, yeah, it was 43 minutes total. And um, and and my thought is like, what the fuck else does Minister Malcolmson have to do today? <laughs> Except for talk about this, you know, like what could be more, but there's precedence for this. Like on the anniversary of the declaration of the overdose crisis, there's always a lot of like, um, community events that, uh and and last year there you know drug user activists they marched down the street there's like a safe supply giveaway sort of like direct action defiantly breaking the, the law to show what's what's possible and uh, on that day in the morning when we contacted minister malcolmson we were told that she she had the day off and wasn't going to be taking questions mm-hmm. by about noon uh as People's media figures started to tweet that that seemed uh, like fucking bullshit, you know. <laughs> uh, she suddenly w- became available. But there is this just sort of like, oh, today might be a tough day. So, let's maybe just kind of duck it mm-hmm. um, thing that they've done before. And it is galling because it's like, what else? Like, your your whole job should just be doing these press conferences, given that you don't really do anything
2: else, you know. so Yeah, I mean... I mean, if we had gotten to interview her, we would want to unpack all of the propaganda that comes out of that ministry about British Columbia, you know, that we're a leader in harm reduction, that there's safe supply, that there's all this stuff, all the stuff that she says is full of like contradiction and uh, unfinished detail, you know, that yes, a very small percentage of people are getting prescribed kinds of opioids that A lot of people in North America don't get, uh, but it's a tiny proportion. It's very high barrier. So when she tells people, oh, we've got safe supply here in British Columbia, everyone thinks, oh, that's done Mm -hmm. and we're still having deaths. So that must not work. And then you start to see a bunch of doctors piling on and, and sort of forming an opposition saying we can't have this program. This is very bad. So they're actually creating more problems for us as organizers and and drug users. So we wanted to interview and and go into all these details. But of course, when you're on a press conference, you just get one question. And so we decided to bring the question that the movement was putting to her, Um, you know, like uh, groups like the BC Association of People on Opioid Maintenance, the Drug Users Liberation Front and VANDU, the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users had decided, look, let's just call for the resignation. You know, they've put this symbol up, this this fake minister as a symbol as a as someone who's as Sam says officially sad let's let's call for their resignation you know let's use our let's let's answer the symbol mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so that was the question we were going to ask and and of course then we didn't get to
1: well i wanted, I wanted to ask you guys just as an aside a quick question about the about the press conference because uh, so so the ministry had uh, a doctor named Ramni uh, dossange up talking about how uh it's not an easy decision to prescribe uh opiates both for the patient and for the doctor <laughs> and and i wanna I wanted to ask you what do you think she meant by that? Because I have an idea what she means by that, but i wanna know what you guys think she meant by that
2: I don't know sam what did, what do you what did you think she meant?
3: I think that uh I think that basically. Um, she's saying we don't want to fucking give drug users drugs because like we've been taught and we are committed ideologically to the idea that like people are drug seeking and that our job is to tell them to stop doing that and to be, to have this kind of like um, police like role in people's lives where we, where we like make the hard decisions um, on their behalf, like, and that suddenly we're being asked to do this other thing that, frankly, we don't want to do, and uh, so it's like you know, it's tough for us, you know, and uh, we, we, it's like it creates a cognitive dissonance that we don't like. I mean, that's, I think that's basically what she's saying. I, don't I mean,
1: know. won't somebody think of the poor doctors? <laughs> Yeah, seriously.
3: I mean, (laughs) doctors are like we don't talk enough about how regressive a a force politically doctors are um, in B.C., I think like they before um, before the new prescribing guidelines that the government calls safe supply, this kind of like ability to prescribe uh, dillies to people and that kind of thing uh, came through it was the addiction doctors who were the loudest voice against this. I mean, they really like there's internal emails we can see where the college of physicians is saying like, we have never heard so much opposition to an idea from our membership and, and specifically from people who deal with addiction um, uh, than this. And so they're recommending, don't do this policy because it's not going to work. And, and they're basically right. It hasn't worked in large part because the doctors refuse to do it. Um, so, so, yeah, I think we need to, like, doctors have been getting off too easy for too long. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's too positive a view of doctors in our society.
0: I do truly believe this. One could, one could say they are uh, plotting uh, to uh, make sure that nobody nobody gets any of the proper medication, but, no, I, I think it's it's this actually like makes me think of something we were talking about earlier in the episode, right? Thinking about like the um the conflict between authoritarian capitalism and sort of managerial neoliberalism, these two um, ruling class ideologies sort of battling it out. The same thing with what the doctors are doctors uh, versus the kind of limited, highly regulated, safe supply people. It's two ideologies battling it out that have zero connection, except for harm, basically, to the people who are actually affected by the policy. It is a total remove from the people they're supposed to be accountable to and who they're responsible for. Like, you can see that happening. Um, and, you know, I also, I, I wanted to, I've got this in front of me right here, right? We talked about, like, what, what Malcolmson is claiming and uh, claiming she's doing. Um, and in amongst that is, as you mentioned, this safe supply thing. She's got half a billion, which, again, when something has been a, what, a sort of emergency for six years to put 500 million towards, it seems insulting. Um, and the but again, they're if you look right, you'll see I want you to tell me when you when I tell you something effective, uh, new beds for addictions and recovery care. So putting more people in the hands of those same people who are advocating against the actual effective treatment, and that's 132 million of the half a bill um and that's just like substance use beds uh being and the edited. and the
3: word beds totally like it, it obliterates this huge ideological continuum within the the recovery industry you know where on the one's like like at the far side of of uh one of the extremes you have basically people shouting at you and shaming you um for, and they can and they sort of consider that therapeutic so the the word beds it's just this like technocratic thing like someone is there
2: helping you know in some way but but it's like it's really it's it, great for voters you know because it's like drug users will be instead of running around your town they'll be tucked in bed you know they'll right. be like Given a hot chocolate and told to go to sleep, Um, you know, like just the idea of beds. If you just don't examine it at all, it just sounds good. Like people will go to bed, like you put your children to bed.
1: It's not unlike uh, another classic uh, B.C. like sort of neoliberal, like uh, obscuring magic word. I'm thinking about like uh, affordable housing, you know, like there's (laughs) a huge continuum there as well. Mm -hmm. And it does make you feel good to vote for it
2: that's right famously de- defined by a vancouver city councillor as housing which can be afforded by the person who's living in it ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, a perfect circle um
0: right so what you have is uh, we have yeah these these beds which again as you say just are this magical cover that contains a, uh, contains multitudes many of which are bad um you know, the expanded scope of nursing practice which they claim is a canadian fir- a canadian first Uh, but again, this is like people who are trained, um, on like Suboxone and would appear to be like opioid, uh, uh, sort of agonists, right? They're expanding access to opioid agonist treatment. So it's like they are, what they're doing is they're, they seem to be saying, we are going to look at this. We are, we are going to look at the symptoms of this, right? But in order to look at the, the causes, right, what we're going to do is we are going to, uh, we're going to create an app um, called Lifeguard. Uh, mm. And they're, so they're creating an app um, and they're doing the save for supply thing, which you guys I've mentioned is like paltry and inadequate, but they're also saying we're going to decriminalize. Isn't that great? But you read the details of that. It seems like they're not really going to do it in any meaningful way.
3: No. In fact, uh, Bonnie Henry um here I'll try to get the actual I got I have the report here cuz I figured we were going to talk about this try to get the actual date. So Bonnie Henry put out a uh May a report, 2019. Uh, May
2: 2019.
3: Okay, yeah. So she put out a report calling on the province to decriminalize and she suggested some preliminary ideas of how they could do it using their own kind of provis- uh, provincial authority and um and Mike Farnworth uh, the, the minister of uh, public safety squashed the idea like in the same news cycle, like we're not going to do that. So what, so what they've done instead is they've, um, they've asked the federal government for permission, basically said, you guys should decriminalize. And um, it was clear all along that the federal government had no interest in doing this. Mm-hmm. So one of the things she brags about is, yeah, we are the first province to ask For permission from somebody else to um to do this thing that we refuse to do ourselves i mean totally galling that they count this as an accomplishment especially because it didn't work you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like how could you say like oh we're the first ever to to fail
0: in this specific way (laughs) so that's i mean this is just perfect i mean this is basically just an extension of how american liberalism works though right like if you wanted to say, well, why, why is Sheila Malcolmson in this position? She's just going to fail. It's like, there's nothing more that the, the, the one half of our political divide, right. That actually could get as a chance of getting power, which is the sort of telling you that it's all going to be okay. While they sort of, you know, turn, turn off the lights and strip the copper, copper piping out of the walls of the country. Right. Uh, most of what they do is they fail and they fuck up and they did their best and then they just get promoted. It's why, like, if yeah. you look south in the American Democratic Party, like, yeah, it's, it's full of, you know, four term losers and fuck ups who are unable, um, who are unable to ever, you know, accomplish anything, who just lose election and keep getting promoted to ever greater roles. You know, it's so it's if, if you if I was sort of an ambitious, uh, you know, liberal, uh, small L liberal. Um, um, minister, I'd say, yeah, put me in the role where I'm gonna take the biggest fucking beating. I'm willing to like do it for the party. I'm willing to do it for our our little mafia here, and then you know, I know I'm gonna get taken care of. But it's the same thing, right? We're saying, oh yeah, we we asked we asked nicely uh we tried and we had a noble failure um you know, to save the actual lives of the people who were responsible for, and we're gonna say, hey, everyone, we tried our best. uh sorry that you're on your own during this crisis of our making
2: yeah. Yeah. It's a, the uniquely Canadian part of this is, well, perhaps not. The part I notice a lot is the blaming another jurisdiction, another level of government. You know, even even as uh, the city of Ottawa was occupied um, and the state was apparently imperiled, uh, there were sections of it pointing to other sections of it mm-hmm. for reasons why they couldn't do anything about it. You know, so we we just love to do this here. But uh, out of that whole game comes uh, like state abandonment, right? So like you get to point fingers at each other, the federal and the provincial government on the overdose crisis. They are constantly doing this, right? Um, and climate change emergencies and really in some senses, the pandemic. And now like, who's going to, who's going to save people from fascism? Like, well, no, nobody in the state, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just like, um, yeah, drug users have, have been uh, facing the sort of mass death for um, quite a while. We're by no means the first in the Canadian state, you know, just more recent, but now it's something for everybody. Now everybody can be abandoned to die uh, by the state. Now necropolitics is for you and your neighbors and your family and your church. It's for almost everybody except for like a handful of people who are at the top, uh, you know, the families that are, like the Irvings and everybody who are who are making all the money in Canada. Everybody else can go fuck themselves, though.
1: Well, if you don't want to die in, in this, like, spasm of necropolitics, it's clear what you have to do is get a job working for the government, uh, being the designated mourner for all the people who are going to die, and explaining
0: mm-hmm. to them. You know. Yeah, it's, it's either that or learn, like, you know, fucking uh, uh, JavaScript. So <laughs> it's one of the two. Um
3: you know one of the thing one of the things about the overdose crisis that I think is like needs to be stated is there's kind of like a flurry of interest in it around 2016 and then every now and then it get there's something about it becomes you know kind of uniquely horrifying and and the press reports on it again but I think it because it's just always bad it, it there's like it's kind of difficult sometimes to like give it the attention that it deserves and so this the larger narrative that people have missed is just the utter mainstreaming of this problem like how just like how it's affecting everyone so i think these stats are probably like a year old and i i couldn't find more recent ones but the median age of people who die of overdose in canada i sorry in bc is 44 which means because all the other disease categories are like 72 and 73 um, which means that, like, uh, British Columbians, more uh, have lost more years of potential life from overdose than every single other mortality cause except for malignant cancer. So you think about that. What is cancer? It's like this, like existential human problem about the way cells divide. That like has been the that has been like this impossible to solve challenge, and and maybe like one of the greatest tragedies of, a, of of human existence forever and what are overdose deaths fucking totally preventable problem that um were, that that you know very recently uh wasn't a problem at this level at all there are clear policy solutions that would actually save money that we're not trying to do anything about. And it's one of the only disease categories that's that's getting worse, not better, you know. Um, and uh, so, I, I just think when I look at that, it's like, what else are you going to try to do something about if not this? <laughs> you know, like it's uh, it's really fucking galling if you stop and think about it.
0: And I mean, I think this is probably a good time, Dan, something we were talking about earlier, right? Because, you know, you're, you're down in the bottom of New Orleans Bureau, right? That's and right. you're talking to you were talking to people down there, who you know they were who who are sort of the, the, the canaries in the coal mine to the south,
2: of yes. people who
0: were who have been affected by, um, essentially disasters caused or magnified by state apathy or hostility or whatever it is in that continuum. You know, to those affected by it, where you yeah. can think like I think like, like a, a hurricane should be a non-event, just like. You know, someone using opioids should be a non-event, a functional state that's concerned with, you know, if that is actually concerned with you know, protecting the lives of its citizens, like mitigate uh, any problems to do with this. But it doesn't. So can you sort of you just sort of bring up what we were talking about about that? Yeah,
1: I I mean, I've been hanging out with uh, a group of people who have all either together or separately in different organizations have been involved in mutual aid. some of the older ones were involved in, I, I mean, I can't even imagine uh, what it would take to live through Katrina and and kind of organize food distribution and rescue operations, but that's what they did. And then, uh, of course, like Hurricane Ida. And one of the things that they, they've all said is that uh, New Orleans should be Used as a, there should be some kind of institute here that the rest of the world and and the rest of the country can look to, uh, because these disasters are are it's a window into the future. These disasters are are coming for us all. It's the stuff we were just talking about too. The absence of the state, um, either through uh, neglect or just sheer malice towards the people being affected. Um, how do you organize in in that kind of vacuum of responsibility and one of the things that was really interesting to me was when they were talking about food distribution. So I talked to a woman who was setting up local food distribution. It's ongoing. They're, they've, they've got this thing running where they're just giving out food and they set the organization up themselves and they were liaisoning with local municipal groups and and the local government here. And the local government, their big opposition to this was what if people show up and take like 40 boxes of cheerios and put them in the trunk of their car and then go and sell them you know like it, it was a human nature argument against these food distribution networks that people would abuse them and profit off of them so we just can't do it and of course they they were like fuck that and they and they ended up doing it anyway and it was fine so
0: <laughs> i mean i think there's a there's if if you want to think about sort of you know the the moralism right of why They can't do what the only thing that we know works, right? Which just, uh, and again, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the only thing we know works is not say decriminalization of small amounts for for personal use, but like actually decriminalizing throughout the supply chain so that you don't have to have the dynamic that we talked about the last time that you guys came on, which is people getting trying to cram more and more potency into smaller and smaller amounts of substances that, and that, and or like unsafe suppliers that that are like not legally accountable to like any kind of you know that you can't like complain about or whatever, right? That every if everyone's criminalized or if any part part of the supply chain is criminalized, there's danger inserted. And I feel like it's for that similar sort of moralizing argument that they can't do the thing. The only thing that will work This belief that ah oh, well, if we signal that we approve of it, then everyone is you know then everyone and and, and just gonna like stop working because they're all going to have too much fun, you know, doing drugs. That that seems to be the thing that's lurking underneath every bit of resistance to doing the thing that we know will stop the crisis. Is this like fear rooted in a kind of moralistic feeling that that goes all the way back to when Mackenzie King, you know, went to Vancouver and was like, ah, uh, you know, if we, if we have to make this uh, illegal or else everyone's going to like become Chinese. You know, if it, it's, it's that this same sort of, assumption about human nature is sort of underneath all of it. I don't know what, what do you does that sort of
2: resonate for you guys? It's like we're riding the crossfader here between like this moral outrage to save uh you know white Canadians from the scourge of drugs or white north americans. On the one hand, and having a big government program with militaries around the world and police in every neighborhood and and public health um, scoldings uh, and after school specials and all that, like classic drug war stuff on the one side of the crossfader. And then on the other is just necropolitics. It's just like we just don't give a fuck about these people. So, like, you know, it's it's okay if they die. Like we're we're fine to make the decisions where they die. Mm. I feel like we're somewhere in between. Like, I feel like the the drug war, I haven't totally figured this out yet, but I feel like the drug war itself in its prime is such a, the the way the state used to be. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, we're going to have this big program. We're going to stamp this out. We have big dreams of this drug free world and we're going to mobilize resources and create departments and spend money, lock people up. Like, I think they still like to lock people up. I think they still enjoy the excuse to, um, you know, police black neighborhoods and uh, surveil people. But it's just like that big sense of mission is so, uh, is, is so it's like from a previous idea of the state, Mm -hmm. you know, and the nuked from orbit state, it remembers, you know, it's, it's like, um, Strewn and scattered ashes. Remember how it used to be, and so they'll they'll try, but it's just not the same. And and the one that fits now is just like, just let people die. Mm -hmm. Who cares? You know, it's just and and the um, NDP progressive side of that is, well, feel bad. At least put somebody up there to feel bad about it. Mm -hmm. And the conservative version is just like, fuck those guys, Mm -hmm. (laughs) fuck them. You know, and so we have these two these two versions of of the same thing in front of us, but it's just not like, I just don't feel like anybody's trying to sell the drug war like they used to, because it just doesn't fit the necropolitics of now, which is just go on and die. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
3: And I think, I think the other, the other side of this is that, uh, you know, I mean, like we try to emphasize all the time, like most, most people who use drugs don't have any kind of disordered or problematic relationship with the drugs. They just like, the drugs and they want to get high and that's normal and fine you know like it's worth saying that there are people who use drugs um because it helps deal with inner torment and, and or physical pain and you know in an ideal world they'd prefer not to have to do that and i think like the the kind of like alienation Um, and neglect of of neoliberalism you know drive is driving this demand for for obliteration um and there is no there is no plan to do anything about that and so the best you can hope for is try to like uh stamp out the ability for people to to uh to to seek that obliteration right it's like it, they, they may be perhaps rightfully are are uh afraid that if there's more access to to opioids that there will there will keep being more and more demand for the opioids um that we have a completely fucking broken housing system for instance we have like uh like uh colonialism like um is is going You know, uh, totally strong in the in the foster system. Like we we still produce all the harm that might make people want a little uh, a little self
2: uh, fucking A uh, or or you have to work at Starbucks all the time. That's right. You, know, right. Or you have just a fucking yeah. boring life and no future. And it's the climate apocalypse. I had this yeah. interview not too long ago where uh, the journalist was asking me like, well, can you just explain to me the theory of why people use drugs? And I just got <laughs> so sick of the question. I was just like, yeah. no, no, no. You explain to me why people don't. Why at the end of the fucking world, at the zombie apocalypse to to wipe us all out, why aren't you? Using drugs right now? How can you go through life without a little cushion of opioids to help you yeah. along your way? Uh, I don't understand it. Do. You have to now explain to me. <laughs> a lot of people do. Yeah, I mean, of-
1: that's that's the thing is there's the right way yeah. to deal with uh the with the collapse of the state and the loss of meaning and the difficulty of uh, getting your hands on the levers of power and just feeling fucking impotent and helpless. And that's you go to your doctor. And you're like, I can't focus at work or I feel sad or my fucking back hurts. And that's fine. That's mm-hmm. all right. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, buying shit on the street, um,
2: you're a piece of shit and, and you get to die. And they'll, you know? they'll they'll maybe give you something good or maybe they'll tell you to go try some yoga and mindfulness meditation. You know, <laughs> maybe if <laughs> you I just like focus on your self-care a little bit as the world implodes that you'll feel better.
1: Yeah. I'm just- I'm going to start dealing underground yoga. That's my plan. That's my <laughs> yeah, so dog. I think like,
3: I, I think that part part of this is just like, y- you know, there are things that they could do. Like there is like immediate emergency response things they should do to the overdose crisis. And like providing a safe supply of drugs is on the top of that list. Decriminalizing is is right up there. Those are easy, not necessarily easy things to do, but easy decisions to make Mm -hmm. um but then there has to be a whole second harder task of like uh trying to create a little resiliency and and remove the vulnerability that neoliberalism creates that's the upstream thing that they're completely unwilling and unable to do Mm -hmm. and that's always got to be part of the mission like that like that is in those overdose numbers. It's all that shit
2: too. Mm-hmm. So um, this is This is so part yeah. of our fight with them too, right? Is like, who's to blame for all of this? And when they talk about stigma, they have this interesting way of talking about it now. And Sam, you pointed this out to me in the press conference that we were talking about earlier in the episode. Is the stigma the way the state talks about it? is that we as drug users self-stigmatize ourselves. We don't like ourselves and this is a barrier to us to go seek treatment. So it's like pointing the finger all the way around at, at the victim in this situation. They don't want to even think about um, neoliberalism and the collapse of the state and all those systemic things as, as perhaps part to blame. So mm-hmm. they're, they're always kind of turning it around and that's part of the big, really consistent with the big personal responsibility narrative. You know, the big sort of bc style thatcherism that we have here Uh, and i just i really see it between the lines all the time and and also right like i I think the other thing it is is it's a colossal
0: failure of historical memory right because we treat these drug laws as things that just always were they were just always Mm -hmm. there um, this idea that you know drug users are a danger to your children, they're a danger to the nation, they're dangerous, all this stuff. They need to be punished, kicked out, whatever. We know what the origins of those drug laws were, but for some reason, it's the onus is on the people trying to. Now that we know what what they were, the they are still unwilling to move away from them because of know, some combination of cruelty, sheer inertia, uh, the nukes from orbit state, just all of these things combining together. To create yet another sort of existential crisis where the best thing that the state can offer is uh, you're sort of on your own we have an app we asked the federal government we got our guy in the federal government to ask the federal government but you know what do you want me to do i'm just the guy in charge of everything <laughs>
3: <laughs> Well, one of the things they do is they make like bus ads and like ads that go like if you go to a bar like that are at like the urinal or whatever um, this campaign for like stopoverdose.ca and if people like I don't know if you guys have seen this but the the ad is always like a handsome looking guy like with a beard wearing a sweater looking sort of sad looking straight <laughs> at the camera and then it's like a list of like father brother magician nephew like <laughs> nouns like that, uh, yeah. and it's like the the point is like, oh, this guy's a human too, even though he's a dirty drug user yeah. oh, as he's well. And you'd never know. Cool. Yeah, exactly. I guess he doesn't
0: deserve to die.
3: And it's as if like me at the bar, I I recognize this guy's humanity, and then he and then he doesn't die because of that somehow. Because yeah. I'm I'm less mean to him. at at our family functions or something. Um, What the fuck is, is the actual, like this stigma thing is like this magical invisible force, the way Mm. they talk about it. And if we could just all be a little bit less mean to each other, then people would not die. Yeah. You know, because, because something happens that makes them not die. Like, it's totally mysterious what what the fuck they're even talking about. Well, it's you know? the
2: fucking guy who comes and breaks your leg and then scolds people for making fun of your limp, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right.
0: Oh, my. Um, you know what? I, I think that's actually, that feels to me like a, like a pretty complete thought. Um, so, I just want to say, number one, Garth and Sam, do you have the last word?
3: I guess okay yeah sure I think I think um one thing to say is that if you stare at the state and their response to this problem you'll go insane and you'll um be very disheartened but if you stare at uh r- real people and what they're doing you can feel encouraged um there's like there's this group the drug user liberation front that um are so part of and they are they're very seriously demonstrating what it would be like to have a humane society as they as they kind of like create this um co-op for a safe supply of drugs that's that's actually compassionate and and built on com, like a community model and um and i th- i think some of the time i get too preoccupied with looking at at uh, the government and go uh, go um, get a little sad <laughs> because of it, but uh, it's good once in a while to look at like w- like the actual compassion that real people have for each other, um, and that's still out there. So
2: yeah, Hell yeah, it's kind of unfair yeah. because um, you know ten days ago on on that Wednesday when those statistics were announced by the coroner, Sam had to sit there on the phone on the press conference trying to ask a question at the same time i was going down to the drug user liberation front action where they were giving away free tested drugs so that doesn't seem right for sam to have to take one for the team like that but both of those events are really important because they show you things other than what's going on in the drug war they show you how the state is um just abandoning people to die not just from toxic drugs, but climate change, pandemic, you name it, and then sort of wringing their hands and saying they're trying really hard and sending out confusing messages that are supposed to just be like a pat on the head and everyone go home. And, of course, what that does is it, for those of us who watch really closely, um, we have an analysis. And for people who are just busy taking care of their kids and at work and everything, it just fills them with empty nihilism. Uh, And that's super dangerous in a time of rising fascism. So that's on the one hand. And then on the other hand, we see civil disobedience operating as it always has, like breaking unjust laws as a way to try and make progress. But, um, you know, like we're just in this kind of end of the world state collapse moment where I don't know, uh, you know, the necropolitics of just leaving people alone. That seems to be also what they're doing in response to the civil disobedience of passing out free tested heroin, meth and coke. That sounds extremely radical, but they're just like, well, maybe we just won't care. You know, maybe we'll just let them do it. Mm-hmm. But um, if history is any show, any indication, this is actually how we got safe injection sites and new syringes. So it's it's the plan. It's what we can do.
3: Mm-hmm. And, f- and for yeah. people who don't know, they, they don't care in, sp- in spite of. Uh, some really provocative stuff that the activists have done, including having a city councilor give away the drugs um, and uh, inv- sending a golden ticket to the police, <laughs> inviting them to the event. Like, it's they're, <laughs> like the activists are, are trying to provoke a response and they're just kind of going,
0: nah, we're not going to do anything about this. That's right. Anyway, um, I just want to say, uh, Garth and Sam... Thank you so much for coming and hanging out with us today and uh, talking about this subject. Uh, I strongly recommend uh, anyone, not just who's in uh, BC or Vancouver, but who's in all of Canada or around the world and is interested in, I would say, a crit- critical analysis of and actual response, like effective responses to necropolitics, should check it out immediately. Uh, and
2: we'll put a link in the description
0: to this episode. But, guys, like I said, thanks very much for coming on.
2: Oh, yeah, thank you guys. Thanks so much for having us. I really, thanks, I really loved your um, 70s trucking film review uh, film fest club that you had the other week. That was, <laughs> that was really great. <laughs> Made me want to go watch part, like
1: part two coming. <laughs> oh, good. Part oh, good. Two coming soon.
0: Well, uh, sorry, Dan, part two came last week. <laughs> By the part time two this came last week. Yeah. Okay, never mind. <laughs> yeah. Alright well, uh, yeah, I'm sorry be we've at... been recording this from a time warp <laughs> But um, Yeah so don't forget Check out Crackdown and thank you for being A listener to Bottleman and uh, Please don't forget we have a Patreon Seven bucks a month second episode Every fortnight uh, So do check that out as well Anyway catch you later Bye right. Bye